Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. So our guest today is Jonathan Belenkov. He is a PhD student at MIT working with uh, Dr. James Glass. His current research interests are in developing and understanding vector representations for language, especially based on neural uh, network models. It's a pleasure having you with us today, Jonathan. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so the paper we're going to talk about today is called um, What do Neural Machine Translation Models Learn About Morphology? Um, could you give us like a, a brief overview on the paper? Sure. So um, our main goal in, in this work is to understand what's going on inside uh, neural network models. And the motivation is that often these models are uh, thought of as a black box. So maybe you train them on some uh, task using some data set and you evaluate the performance on a downstream task um, and you get a number. Then you tweak the, the model, you train it again, and you get a different number. But So the model presumably does better, but what has it learned um, and why is it doing better is, is not as clear. So um, we were interesting to understand what's going on inside machine translation models, um, specifically neural network models for machine translation, and what they are actually able to learn about the language, the source language and the target language while they are being trained from um, a data set of parallel sentences. And the methodology that we took is, is uh, pretty straightforward. So the idea is to first take a, a standard machine translation system and train it on large amounts of uh, parallel sentences, um, then extract some hidden representations from this uh, pre-trained model. So these may be, for example, activations of the recurrent neural network um, at every word. Uh, we extract those features, those representations, and we think of them as features that represent something about uh, the word as learned by the machine translation system. Then we want to evaluate the quality of this of these representations for some tasks. So we define a, a much simpler task, um, for example, part of speech tagging, and we train a classifier to predict part of speech tagging for every word based on those features that we extracted from the machine translation system. So at, at this step, we do not we do not touch the uh, we do not update the weights of the neural machine translation system. So after training them. It's, it's frozen and we, we do not touch them anymore. So we only train our simple classifier um, on a supervised data set and evaluate the quality of the classifier on the supervised uh, data set, on the test set. Then the assumption behind this procedure is that the quality of that classifier can tell us something about the input features. So if we have good input features, we can train a, a good classifier and that in turn tells us something about the original machine translation system and what it has learned for the given task that we are evaluating the classifier on. Sounds like um, uh, a very simple procedure and um, I'm, I'm quite surprised that uh, people haven't tried do, doing this before. The closest thing I, uh, I know of, uh, which is kind of related but not quite, uh, is the work uh, that uh, Yulia Tsevskov uh, did in, um, at CMU. Um, she did some work on evaluating word embeddings 
uh, but the word so the, the idea there is to uh, represent have uh, have a number of words uh, a set of words for which you know some uh, linguistic information so maybe they're power speeches or uh, they're morphological class uh, but they're out of context and you're only evaluating the word uh, embeddings that are evaluated uh, that are estimated maybe using word to vec or another uh, method but not in not inside another um, another task um, and then the uh, what she does is uh, she aligns the Im embedding uh, the dimensions in the embedding uh, vector with uh, the dimensions that represent the various linguistic information about uh, about these words um, and tries to find uh, the uh, like the the if if we get a better alignment between these dimensions and the linguistic features, uh, then she would uh, she would assume that uh, these these embeddings are good at representing these linguistic phenomena. Right. So um, I think a number of people had worked on evaluating word embeddings for specific tasks um, using. So the, the work you mentioned is one, one way to do that. A different way to, slightly different way to do that, similar to our methodology, would be take the word embeddings coming out of Word2Vec or Glove or whatever, and uh, try to predict some uh, properties using, again, a classifier. Uh, so people like Arne Kuhn from Hamburg University had done that um, on, on a number of syntactic tax, uh, tasks. And I think there's also work by Peng Kian um, from Fudan University doing uh, similar things. You, you, but you are right to mention that these works do not consider the context uh, of the sentence, which I think is very important for, for many tasks. The, I should say that um, similar methodology was also used by other people. So, for example, uh, Xing Shi, uh, Inkit Padi, and Kevin Knight from USC had worked on machine translation, and they looked at what's going on uh, with syntax in neural machine translation using a very similar methodology. So this is work from uh, previous EMNLP, um, and, and I found some interesting things about English uh, syntax. And I, I guess there are a couple of papers that are very recent around the same time that you've been doing this work that do very similar things. So Matt Peters and Walid Amar have an ACL paper. It, the goal isn't to uh, examine what the model learns as much as use learned representations in some downstream task. So like the, the goal is maybe a little bit different, but, but the model and how everything is set up is exactly the same, where you train some other model, in, in these other cases, a, a language model, uh, and you fix the representation and you apply it in some downstream task, in their case, na named entity recognition. And then there's also the unsupervised sentiment neuron by uh, folks at OpenAI. Yes, yeah, so I would say the the, the main uh, distinction, in my opinion, between uh, this line of work and that is the goal. The goal here is to examine or to uh, really like uh, understand the the model for machine translation, the main task, better. And this other pseudo task, uh, like the power speech tagging, is only used for that purpose. While in in my paper in in, in ACL. Uh, the goal was to improve the, the other task, which was uh, like sequence labeling and using the language model uh, in order to achieve that. So I think that's... Uh... Yeah, I think, I think that's an important distinction. So we, we actually do not really care if we are able to get like state-of-the-art 
uh, morphological tagging performance. So that's not so important. I mean, it's nice to see and, and our results show that some of these hidden representations from the machine translation system are very strong and they do get pretty nice results. But our goal is not to improve the state of the art on morphology or photo speech tagging, but use the this evaluation as a way to get some insight into what's going on inside the machine translation system. Yeah, the reason I bring this up, I, th I think your work is really interesting, and it's in this line of work on representation learning, right? Where ev everyone, it seems like, well, not everyone, but a, but a lot of people these days are, are trying to understand the limits of representation learning in neural nets, and can we come up with models and a nice way to, to do general representation learning that helps with a wide variety of tasks, and, and, and your work fits really nicely in that line, even though it, it's looked... I guess it's it's more explicitly studying the representations than performance on the downstream task, which, which is interesting. Right, and and I think the two are, are kind of related. So, like a, a longer term goal of of our work is that if we understand these representation uh, better, we can improve representation learning for for some like real world task, right? So we're hoping we can understand what's going on the MT system better. Maybe we can improve the machine translation system, and and we do have some follow up work that is still. It's still not out um, where we show we can improve the decoder um, based on some of in, some of the insights that uh, this work has has given us. Cool. So, can you tell us a little more uh, detail about the model uh, for uh, neural machine translation? Sure. So, um, we used a pretty standard uh, machine translation system, which is um, composed of an encoder-decoder uh, framework with an attention mechanism. So. The idea is you, you represent words as uh, vectors, as word embeddings. These are randomly initialized in the, in the beginning. And then you um, go over the words one by one using a recurrent neural network. We use an LSTM, a long short-term memory network. And you encode each word into a, a, a hidden representation. And at the end of the sentence, you get a sentence representation, which you can use in order to feed into the decoder. So the decoder takes this hidden state uh, and, and starts um, predicting the target words in the in the translation again word by word. Um, and the only main uh, addition to this is the attention mechanism, which allows the decoder to have uh, to focus on different words in the source sentence uh, dynamically as it, as it proceeds through the uh, decoding of the target sentence. So that that is the main uh, that is the framework. Um, which has been around for a couple of years now and is doing pretty good results on uh, on machine translation. The particular architecture that we used was at, uh, two layers of uh, of an LSTM, um, pretty shallow, but we also used kind of not not super big data sets, so uh, we found that that was enough. And the uh, target uh, words are generated with a softmax, or uh, is there? Yes, yes. Target words with the softmax, um, a vocabulary. I think I think we took like a default in one of the in the tool that we were using, uh, which is seek to seek uh, a ten by Harvard. Um, so it was fifty thousand words on on each side. Uh, right. So can you tell us more about uh, the tasks that you use to investigate uh, the model's ability to learn morphology? Yes. So. Um, we we focused on uh, morphology and we, we specifically chose uh, languages where morphology is more of an issue. So our languages that we experiment with uh, were Arabic, um, Hebrew, Czech, German, and French. And we train translation models from and to English uh, with these languages. 
so morphology is, is, a, is an issue in, the, in these languages because every uh, dictionary uh, word or lemma can have multiple uh, forms. So that, that's something that for a translation system can be pretty difficult because you have, um, so you have sparsity uh, on, the, on the source side if you're translating from these uh, languages, but also on the target side if you're trying to generate a correct uh, morphological form, that could be kind of challenging. So the tasks that we evaluated were uh, first, first parts of speech tagging, which is basically just concerned with uh, for every word, uh, saying if it's part of speech is a verb or noun or an, an adjective and so on. A very simple task, but also kind of a core task to, to start with. Um, and we also looked at morphological tagging, which in addition to identifying the part of speech is also concerned with finding uh, features like uh, for a verb saying if it's uh, past tense, present tense, um, what's its um, person, gender, number, uh, and so on. So in, in some of the languages that we experiment with, this brings, this leads to very uh, complex tag sets. So we have like between hundreds of possible tags uh, to thousands of, of possible tags. So it's a pretty, could be a pretty challenging uh, task. Which, uh, which language had the, the largest number of uh, morphological classes? I think you can guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, several of these are actually uh, quite morphologically complex, so I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess it also depends on the, on the data sets. But Arabic, in our case, had like two, about 2,000 tags, um, possible tags that we have seen in the training set. So that, that, was, the most, that was the largest number of tags. Um, and I should say that uh, in addition to the neural machine translation system, which is like taken for granted, we, we had to decide on a, an architecture for a classifier that does, um, that predicts a, the part of speech or the morphology, which in our case uh, was a simple feed forward neural net with just one hidden layer. So we specifically wanted to take something which is as simple as possible, because, so we are able to focus on the the quality of the representation and not on some issues like context or, or other things. Yeah, that makes sense. So what are the main findings uh, based on this inspection? Right, so we looked at uh, several uh, factors in the neural machine translation architectures or, or basically design choices that one has to, to consider when, when uh, coming up with those systems. So one uh, was uh, what kind of word representation is used. So we compared um, simple word-based representation, which means you take a, every word in the vocabulary is represented as, as a vector. Um, and we also looked at a character uh, CNN, a convolutional neural net over character embedding. So every character in your um, alphabet is a, is a vector, and then you can run a, a CNN on the character embeddings for every word and, and generate a, a, word, a word vector representation, then continue with the machine translation system. So we took these two different kinds of representations, trained a machine translation system, and then uh, checked the quality of, of those representations for morphology. And the main finding is that um, for these languages, using a character CNN leads to much better representations for morphology. It also improves the translation um, quality if you measure blue. Uh, which makes sense. I mean, you improve the, the presentation quality, so you're able to generate better translations. So it's common to use both uh, word level and character level embeddings. Did you try uh, doing that? 
No, we have not combined. I think that's that makes sense. Um, so one thing we've seen is that uh, these two behave differently uh, with different frequencies of words. So the character-based embeddings are especially helpful with low-frequency words, which makes sense. I mean, if you've not seen the word much, you don't know. You don't really know much to do with it if you don't look at characters. But if you go to very high high-frequent um, words, uh, they don't really help. So the, the word-based embeddings are, are kind of enough. So I think, yeah, a combined character word model could maybe um, use the benefits of both of these. I don't know. Looking at the graphs in your paper uh, in figure two, where you show plots of word frequency versus accuracy, uh, comparing word-level models versus character-level models, it doesn't look like there's any place that the word model dominates. Like, I'm not sure that you get anything at all. Yeah, I, I don't think it um, it does better than the character-based model, but it's as good, you know? Yeah, it just makes me wonder what benefit you would get from combining them, because there, there isn't an obvious spot in there where the word the word model does better than the character model. Yes, that's a, that's a good point. I think, so I can, I don't have this result here, but I can tell you of some anecdotal results where I've seen that a character-based model actually fails compared to a word-based model. So this, this, this can happen in cases where you, you look at um, subsequent, like substrings of words and you get a false impression of similarity to other words. So a character-based model can, can find uh, like presumably similar words, but they may not have the same meaning. And I've seen it when I worked on Arabic uh, before uh, a kind of a cute example. So it's it's anecdotal, but it may be. So that, that could explain why sometimes it makes sense to combine these two. Okay. Uh, I, I know the motivation in other tasks, like question answering for combining the two, is to better handle like named entities, uh, things that are, words that are totally out of vocabulary. And I, I don't follow machine translation as much, so I'm just not even familiar. Like, do people actually do this in machine translation? It's really common in question answering to use this concatenation but I, I don't know if it's common. Well, I, I've, I've seen it explored. I think there's work by Cho, uh, Kyunggyun Cho at NYU uh, that does a combination, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what is maybe more common nowadays is to uh, use a subword uh, unit like BPE, byte-pair encoding. So it's an unsupervised way to split words into some uh, subwords, which don't really have a meaning. Um, so in practice, that's what's done like in, in many systems, including Google, Google Translate. Um, Interesting. So, I, yeah. Another thing that I thought was just a little bit surprising in your architecture decision was that you only had a unidirectional LSTM instead of a bidirectional LSTM. Is, yes. Uh, and uh, it's another point where I wondered if that's just a common thing in machine translation that I'm not familiar with, but it's really common everywhere else. No, I would say the common thing to do is have a bidirectional LSTM also in machine translation, at least for the first layer. Maybe not, not all of them. Um, we have tried it uh, in other experiments, and we have seen overall maybe better results using a bidirectional uh, encoder. But qualitatively, uh, or the relative performances are kind of similar. So we don't get different insights. Um, you just get slightly better numbers. Right. So yeah, this, this lets you run some interesting comparison experiments cheaper without really changing the, the result. Right. Nice. Yep. So we have a, a figure that uh, shows the, inc the, the increase in accuracy for various uh, classes. 
um, when you use character as opposed to uh, word-based representations, uh, do you have any comments like the main, the, like the, uh, the biggest increases or the lowest increases? Yeah, so we were also interested in seeing if there are certain tags or certain word classes where character-based models are especially important. And we found that they are especially helpful with nouns and in particular with plural nouns. And, and this is an interesting point because, so this, this particular plot that you're referring to is looking at an er, the Arabic uh, data. So in Arabic, the, the, the nouns and the, and the plural nouns have usually are marked by certain suffixes, right? For the, for the masculine and plural, you have certain suffix. Um, so you take, the, you, you take the singular form and you add a suffix and you get a plural form. And it's nice to see that the character-based model is able to capture these uh, patterns in the data and really improve upon the, the war-based models. So that, that's one uh, factor that we've seen. The other kind of nice uh, aspect that we've seen is that um, determiners are captured, much, uh, are captured better by the, the character-based model. So these are tags where you have something like a DT plus. So DT plus NN is a determiner plus a noun. So in, in Arabic, again, again, the determiner is, um, is joined to the same word and it's marked by two, uh, a two-letter prefix. So a word-based model doesn't really know how to distinguish between a, a noun with a determiner or a noun without a determiner, but a character-based model um, has this ability. So it's nice to see that uh, some, of, uh, some of these tags are better captured by the character-based model. I guess this makes me think of how we used to do it, tagging and other kinds of things back before the days of neural nets, before these were popular, and you would just write some feature extractors that, that uh, essentially had an indicator feature for every possible three-character suffix or three-character prefix. And that captures, you would think, essentially the same information that we're getting these days with these character-based RNNs, where the benefit, hopefully, is that we don't have to actually write these down by hand. But I wonder if, if the CNNs are actually learning something more than what we learned previously. That just struck me as an interesting experiment you could do, like uh, extract a bunch of features uh, from a bunch of words using previous code that did this feature extraction, and then find correlations, uh, like remove, remove the correlation from the CNN representation uh, with all of these features and see what's left. I don't know, just another way to try to tease apart what's going on here versus what we used to do back in the day. Yeah, that sounds like a cool investigation. So there is also uh, an investigation for the uh, encoder depth. Are there any comments you want to make about uh, the results here? Yes, so um, that's the second aspect that we've looked into. So how deep the representation is in the neural uh, uh, machine translation system and the, the motivation here is to see what's going on in different layers. So maybe lower layers uh, learn different kinds of information than, uh, than higher layers. And the main finding we saw is that, well, first, it makes sense to just use a representation above the word embedding. So if we only take the word embeddings um, and try to predict something, we're not doing that great. Um, but once we use uh, at least the first uh, hidden layer, we are able to perform pretty well. Um, perhaps more interesting is the fact that if you go to the second layer, you don't improve uh, your performance on, on uh, morphology. So it turns out that low, uh, the, sec the first layer is actually doing better than the, 
the second layer on the tasks of portal speech tagging and morphological tagging. So, I find, so to me, this was, yeah. Sorry. I find the fact that uh, layer one is giving better results than layer zero to be interesting, actually, because most of the time, the word, even though like uh, some words change their uh, change their um, morphology or uh, the part speech that should be assigned to them depending on context, most of the time, uh, wor like uh, words um, that are common in a particular class will often appear in this in this class. So I would have thought that layer zero, the word level representation without including any context, to give uh, good enough results. But uh, the results are showing otherwise. Yes, I think the context turns out to be um, uh, pretty important. And, you know, even like plain old HMMs do use context, right, uh, to predict part of speech tags. And words that are that are written the same but have different meanings, like read and read uh, or whatever, um, you're, you have to have context in order to, to distinguish the, the morphological tag, right? Definitely. And the, this particular experiment is one where I wonder if you would see different results if you had used bidirectional LSTMs instead of unidirectional LSTMs. But so the answer I, I is um, the answer is no. <laughs> so okay. I, I, I don't show it in the paper, but we, we've done this experiment and um, the results are, the, the trends are the same. So layer one is, is better than layer zero, but it also it's also better than layer two. Interesting. I think that's an interesting point because sometimes we think that deeper is better, right? And and here it's a case where certain information is better captured in the lower layer, in layer one, than, than it is captured in, in layer two. Yeah, if you think of an analogy to what people do with uh, computer vision and ImageNet, you wouldn't really want to take the representations from the top layers of your um, VGG model and use that to predict edges, whereas the lower hidden layers are much better at predicting edges because that's what they're finding, right? So this actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good uh, point. And this raises the, the question of what is actually being captured in the, in the top layers in, in the machine translation system, like compared to the, um, you know, the vision an analogy. Yeah. Is there some more global property uh, that is maybe captured there? Do you have any good idea of how to test what that would be? So, yeah, um, well, one way to do that, and, and that's something that we've been working on in, in follow-up work, is to use a similar methodology, but define a different kind of task. So instead of, instead of looking at morphological tasks, you, we could look at semantic uh, tasks or, or syntactic tasks. And we have preliminary results that show that for semantic ta tagging tasks, um, more information is captured in the, in the higher layers of the network than in the lower layers, that w which kind of aligns with what we might expect. So that, I think that's nice. Cool. Nice. So this work is in collaboration with QCRI. I'm curious to know uh, how this collaboration uh, came together and how it's working. Yeah, so um, this work is with a number of people, uh, Nader, uh, Duani, Fahim, Dalvi, and Hassan, uh, Hassan Sajad, uh, all from QCRI, and of course with my advisor, uh, Jim Glass. Uh, so, sorry, and, and, one yeah. sec. QCRI, what's that? Yes, that's the Qatar, Qatar Computing Research Institute. So okay. it's, um, it's a, a computer science in research institute in uh, Qatar. Um, which has a fairly large number of people working in, in all sorts of 
of fields uh, of computation. Uh, and they have a, a, a major group working on Arabic language technologies, uh, which we have been collaborating with for a number of years. And more broadly, MIT has an ongoing uh, collaboration project with uh, QCRI that's been going on for several years now in, uh, in various fields of uh, computer science. Um, and our work is part of the um, language technologies group there that is working on um, a couple of different things. So people, there are people that are working on community question answering, and, and, and we've been contributing to this work um, in a number of iterations of Semival uh, competitions um, and in other publications. Uh, and there's also a lot of work on speech recognition, especially uh, of Arabic uh, including uh, different Arabic dialects that are, are, are as you know, are, are very dif difficult to um, uh, to recognize uh, and all, often very different from each other. Um, and finally, there's a, another group of people that work on machine translation. So this particular paper has been done in, in collaboration with them. Excellent. Thank you very much for making the time to record with us. Um, it, it was a, gr a great pleasure having you with us. Thanks for inviting me.